Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. Hi, this is Stan, the guy with a big old exclamation point. You know what that means. And you are listening to The Tome. In this special yearly episode of The Tome Show, we're chatting it up with R.A. Salvatore about the latest Driss book, The Last Threshold. It's the dawning of a new day for D&D novels, uh, being the first book ever released on three platforms at once, paperback, ebook, and audiobook. You can get your copy on March 5th, 2013, and when you do, swing by www.thetomeshow.com and use our affiliate link at Amazon and buy a copy of the book and support the podcast at the same time. And now I think it's time that we went ahead and brought in our esteemed guest for the episode, Mr. R.A. Salvatore. Welcome back, sir. Good to be back, Jeff. Now, uh, one thing, one yes. thing, me, um, I, the book's not in paperback until September. Or hardback, I should say. Hardback, yes. Yeah. I actually think that Richard Lee Byers' book was paperback, audio, and, and ebook at the same time. So this is the first hardcover. Okay. Audio. Yeah, I don't know. It's very weird, but it's very cool because <laughs> finally it's coming out in audio at the same time as the book yes. is being released. And that's wonderful. Which is awesome. I've, I've been really, I've, uh, I've listened to, to several of the audiobooks uh, that they put out recently, and I'm really enjoying having that other option. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and I've, I guess that um, some of the, like, if you, if you get the Audible book and the and the Kindle version, if you listen to the Audible book, it syncs up with the Kindle. So when you go back to your Kindle, mm-hmm. you're on the page you stopped listening to. It's really weird. The world's getting very strange. I just want to. <laughs> I just want to type. <laughs> yeah. Although, although then then when you like because uh, I listened to uh, Down Shadow recently, which is an Eric Scott Debye uh, Waterdeep book. Yeah, yeah. I, I know it. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, I I I listened to that on on. Uh, Audible, and I can imagine switching back and forth to the Kindle and automatically putting those voices in my head that I was hearing the reader do, you know? Sure. They sort of established sort of the tone of those characters in, in the way they read it. Ooh, that's almost scary. Maybe. <laughs> it's a whole different style of performance. In any case, you are the New York Times bestselling author, best known for your work on the iconic dark elf Drizdu Erden. Yeah. Uh, and in this book... Uh, or this book in many ways, is both the beginning and ending of many things. Uh, being as concrete or esoteric as you'd like to be, what is The Last Threshold about? Well, the Neverwinter series was really my exploration of Dritz, and I think I talked about this last time we, we talked. It was really my exploration of what happens you know, when Dritz is suddenly no longer surrounded by people of, of like heart. You know, for from all of the books since he left the Underdark, his his companions have been people he could count on, people who had the same you know morals, the same values, the same mores, the same 
uh, you know, dedication to community and to each other, as he did. You know, and any of them would take an arrow for anyone else. And now all of a sudden, the world, you know, he he's not with that group anymore. He's with a group of people who are certainly not like that. Uh, quite the opposite. And when you throw that in to the fact that Dritz was ever the optimist, right? I mean, his entire philosophy of life seemed to revolve around the old axiom that as long as my kids are better off than I am, the world is moving in the right direction. And, you know, the Forgotten Realms aren't better off. You know, it's not a better place to live now than it was 100 years ago in the realms because of the the whole spell plague and the whole collision of a bear and toral if you want to call it a collision and the shadow fell and all the darkness that's there it's 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 not a great place so all of that optimism was challenged and at the same time all of that optimism was challenged on a community scale and a and a worldwide scale all of his the things he held most dear were taken away from him one at a time or two at a time in one case and so he's very vulnerable. And the question becomes when, when somebody falls in with the wrong crowd, is he going to lift them up or are they going to drag him down? And it's not as easy an answer, even in a fictional setting, as one would hope. So I had to play it out and I had to see what would happen and what, where Dritz would go and how, how he would deal with all of this, with his grief and with his loss of optimism. And what would the cost of that be? Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like uh, in our previous conversations, uh, as we discussed the Neverwinter uh, books, that it, it, it seemed like there was a good chance that Driss was going to be dragged down. And he seems to make a decision very early on in this book as they're sort of – I sort of feel like if, if this is an adventuring party – uh, in, in a D&D game, they got to the point where, where they've foiled the, the big villain and, and now they're sort of in a more of a sandbox sort of story and making their own adventure and going off and seeking their own plots and, their, and you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, and, and he sort of makes a conscious decision that he's going to specifically try to do things to, to, lift, to, them to, up. to lift everybody else up instead of letting them exactly. drag him down. Exactly. And, and, you know, when you look at the four companions, then five companions – with whom he's traveling, um, that's not going to be an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Although uh, th- these are characters that all along have always sort of shown uh, a potential for that, or many of them. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the potential's there. I mean, especially, you know, you've, you have the monk, um, Afafrin Fair, and, and Amber Grissolo Mall, who's really not a bad sort, and really kind of saved Dritt's life, though he didn't know it in one of the earlier books. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think even Entreri has shown in Road of the Patriarch that he's just not this psychopathic killing machine. He's He's got a code, and, you know, we've seen that from him a lot. And, of course, my hope has always been that Dahlia could find redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dahlia always, as, as horrible as, of, a th- of things as she did, um, it, it becomes clear over time in these stories that she's not so much evil as broken. Broke, oh, broken is the word for her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and this is about. And, her you know, it's to funny to me the reactions to her from people. Um, some of the reactions to the Dahlia character have almost been disappointing to me, because not not whether or not they like the books or not, not on a personal level, but just that 
you know, she is a dirtbag, this and that. And it's like there seems to be no empathy sometimes from people. Mm -hmm. I mean, what she went through was just horrific. And I really enjoyed the the bits where – and it was it was actually Artemis who, who pointed this out – that she's very much about herself, right? And, and maybe that's her being young and immature and, you know, it's all about me, me, me. Um, but she's very much about the horrible things that she had to go through – uh, and, and, you know, it's very much, you know, nobody can under- understand me. Nobody gets, gets what it was like. And Artemis is like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Do you know where Driss is from? Yeah, and he's also, <laughs> I think, hinting in fairly obvious terms that, do you know what happened to me? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that Artemis played a really great role in this series. I, I enjoyed the character a lot. I've, I've the, always enjoyed the, the character. The Neverwinter books. yeah. He, I mean, you know, for me, Artemis, I've always enjoyed him for different reasons. You mm-hmm. know, Streams of Silver when he's forced to fight beside Dritz. Using him as kind of the dark mirror of Dritz, who Dritz thinks he might have been if he stayed in Menzo Berenzan. And then in the, the um, Cell Swords books, I think I saw so much more of who this guy was. You know, one of my favorite scenes I've ever written was when uh, Artemis and, um, was in the dungeons of King Gareth Dragonsbane. Mm-hmm. And Gareth went down there in Promise of the Witch King and was really bothered by Artemis and you know so when Trey kind of looks at him and he goes well of course you don't like me you're looking at yourself just because you make laws to make it legal for your army to tramp over babies doesn't mean it feels good right and to me that was like the ultimate Artemis slap in the face to Gareth and um, I really drew a lot of respect from the guy uh, for the guy through that series and it's carried over obviously because I think I treat him pretty well in this series for most of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially once it's revealed that who he is. You know? Yeah, yeah. Now, in a typical adventure or fantasy book, which, which is normally uh, what, what I get from your books, um, there is a villain with some sort of sinister plot that has to be foiled by the end of the story. Right. Wh- who's the villain of this story? <sighs> <laughs> There isn't one. Right. Well, I, I think there's hints of who could become a villain uh, with Tiago Banre and, and the Zolaran clan that's taking over Gauntlegrim, you know, for future books. Um, I think that, um, you know, Drago Quick isn't the nicest guy in the world, but I don't think I'd call him a villain. And I don't think his actions were all that villainous in this book. Um, I, I certainly don't think Efren qualifies given his understanding of the world. I don't think there is a villain in this book. I mean, we've got some baddies and, you know, the demon running around and things like that. But no, this it's a different kind of book. It, 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 it served a different kind of purpose. And, and it, it, I think it worked better than I ever thought it would. And, you know, I never even realized that I wasn't following that, that patented save the world formula that's so prevalent in fantasy but you know to me yeah you're right that's a great question and you've just got me thinking of this book and where's <laughs> i never had well okay uh, you know who the villain of this book is i just realized who the villain in this whole series is loath oh yeah sure look at this let's let's just step back and look at this series a little differently okay Dritzen, when he's talking about when he meets montolio and sojourn you know back in 1989 90 when i wrote that book um, he talks about gods, and he finds Maliki. 
And he says, you know, he doesn't think a god is is someone up there telling him how to behave. But rather, he found a name for that which is in his heart. Right? Mm-hmm. Through the Neverwinter like series, the temptation, the, the cynicism that has surrounded him, the, the, the kind of uh, death of his optimism a little bit, almost puts him back to where his kin live. So through this, if you look at this series, if you step back and look at these four books, as far as Drizzt is concerned, there's a conflict between Maliki and Loth for his soul. I think it makes it even more fun. Mm-hmm. Now, how much of, and this may be, be stretching a bit, but how much of that uh, was really the point of this story and how much of it was laying the groundwork for a future story? Oh, no, that was all something I came up with after I finished this book. <laughs> okay. So I just, I just started looking at it that way. Oh, sure. I if I had been all along, you know. But, I mean, there, um, there, there is a conflict sort of set up between um, – about, you know, where, where Driss' soul is sort of the prize, about, you know, Maliki and, and Loth. Um, and, and, I, and, I'm, and it felt to me like a lot of that was, was leading into what was coming next. Does that seem fair? Okay. <laughs> That's fair. I, okay. I won't say if you're right or wrong, but sure. it's an assumption. Because we we know the series that's coming next. And you, you don't know my my book. From that, the that's true. We, the series that's coming next isn't really a series in right. that the books follow each other. Right. The way I use it is the analogy of um, if you think of World War II. So the Sundering, World War II is going on in the Forgotten Realms. And I'm writing about the Battle of Britain and Ed's writing about um, – you know, the Blitzkrieg in Central Europe and Troy's in the North Africa campaign and Aaron Evans, Troy Denning and Aaron Evans is doing uh, the Holocaust and Richard Lee Byers is doing the Pacific War and Paul Kemp's doing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Sure. You know what I mean? We're all doing different oh, yeah. parts that overlap a little bit and the meta story is all there. So my book and the, my book, I will tell you that the companions um, – Timeline-wise, overlaps a little bit with um, The Last Threshold. Oh, does it? Because that's the t- time period we're in now. Okay. I didn't know that, but that's the time period we're in now with The Sundering. And um, it's, you know, Dritz is on the cover of it, obviously. Um, but I would definitely not call it a Dritz book. And I would definitely say it's one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book that I've ever written in the Forgotten Realms. And I, and I have never said that before. Up until this point, if somebody asked me what's my favorite book, the answer has always been Homeland in the Dark Elf books, you mm-hmm. know, in the Forgotten Realms books. And I'm not sure I agree with that anymore. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I find it interesting that you, you say you don't consider it a Driss book when in the past you've told me that you consider every Forgotten Realms book you've written to be a Driss book. Well, even, I do. Even I the do. ones I that don't have him Dritz in it. Book. When I say Driss book, I mean Forgotten Realms book. Right. The two have kind of become interchangeable to me. So in that regard, the Cleric Quintet are Driss books. Sure. The Stone of Tomorrow, where Driss is a very minor player, is a Driss book. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway... Okay. So that's just semantics, you know. Um, so if this is, you know, every book in the series is potentially somebody's first book. What do you tell somebody who picked this book up as, as their first Drist book? Sure. If this is somebody's first Drist book, this will be this one of all of them would be a hard one to start with, I think. Mm-hmm. 
um, because it really does place. But you know, in the, on the other hand, if you're reading this book, I mean, this book plays so much on what came before emotionally, and the hints are all over the place from Entreri, from Dahlia, from Dritz, obviously. You get to see the drow. So if there was a first Dritz book, I think this would be a huge hook for somebody to go get Homeland. Okay. So you, you think if somebody reads this and, and is intrigued, it should be encouragement to start from the beginning? You know, I pick up readers with every new book, and people say to me, all, like when The Thousand Orcs, I think, was one of the big ones. When Thousand Orcs came out, I picked up a ton of readers, and they jumped right in. And I've tried to structure the series that way, where every book is satisfying in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's very different. The way I've done this is very different than the way George has done A Song of Ice and Fire or the way Robert did um, Wheel of Time, certainly. Mm-hmm. You can't pick up book five of The Wheel of Time if you haven't read the first four. You'll have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true with any of these books. Although there are elements of this book, like uh, the story with Urtu. Um, you know, there's very little of it throughout most of the book. It sort of appears at the end. It becomes a big thing, and it never interacts with the main story or any or any of the main characters hardly at all. And then it's over with without any of them really being involved, which is a a meaningful story for people who have the background. And 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 I wonder how it plays for people who who you know this is their first book. Well, hopefully you'll say, why is this guy so <laughs> right. hot to go catch him? <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's, I think there's intrigue there, but yeah, I, look, the best way to read the Dritz books is to pick up Homeland and, and go to and sure, read, sure. you know, the Dark Elf trilogy, the Icewind Dale trilogy, the Stone of Tomorrow, the Legacy of the Drow, the Cleric Quintet, uh, Paths of Darkness, the Cell Swords, the Hunter's Blades, uh, Transitions, <laughs> and the Neverwinter Saga. Okay, that's all. So, you know, we're talking about <laughs> something books there, but th- that's the best way to do it. Um, you for, you, but, for, you forgot the comic. The comics fall in there too, and yeah. so do the short stories, the collected <laughs> there, stories. There, the there's, but there's ele- there's elements. And by the way, that's comics because the yes. second one starts in April. True, uh, but and, and, but there are elements of this specific story that make more sense if you've read the comics. Oh, absolutely. And you know, this is kind of an experiment for me because I love I love the work we're doing. My son and I are doing on the comics. I'm having so much fun writing them, and the next one, Cutter, is just. That the artist is amazing, and the story I think really knocks it out of the park, and has so much to do with what's going to happen in the book next March that I'm working on now. Um, it they do tie together, and it, and it's it's interesting for me to do that because you know obviously not everybody who reads the books is going to read the comic, mm-hmm. and. And vice versa. Now, that's easier for the comic crowd that if they don't come to the books, whatever. But for the people who read the books and don't read the comic, I have to be very careful to at least make it an interesting side story like I did in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and where it becomes integral to the plot, I have to explain enough of what happened in the comic so that somebody will not lose anything if they haven't read it. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's hard. I mean, there's a juggling act there, but I really love it. It's a lot of fun. And so, uh, and I was going to ask you this anyway. Um, the new comic coming out, Cutter, uh, you'd say it fits in in terms of of the continuity. It fits in after the Last Threshold and before the Sundering Book. It's actually concurrent, um, time wise, but in a different place. Okay. Um, 
and it would fit into the story. I think the end of that comic, the end of the last threshold, sync up pretty closely to within a few days of each other in the Forgotten Realms oh. timeline. But it sets it sets some groundwork for the story that's being told in the Sundering book. You're saying. Um, it sends more groundwork in the story I'm telling in the book after the Sundering. Oh, book. okay. The one from next March. Oh, okay. That we're working on now. Sure. Okay. Which for which the grounding the groundwork is also being set in the Sundering. Sure. <laughs> I mean, as as you've said before, you don't typically write for trilogies. You're just writing the continuing stories of these characters, right? Yeah, and and there's a lot of paralleling going on with the last threshold. The two comic series and the companions. There's a lot of parallel tracks going on mm-hmm. to lead to the book for next March. It's been an interesting uh, and challenging, which which I love, uh, way to do things. I've got a lot of balls in the air, you know. It's it's not a bad thing to have a lot of work, right? Yeah, and <laughs> the thing is balancing them because sure. they they're all interconnected, and I have so I I can't just. I can't just worry about what makes sense in the next chapter of the book. I have to worry about if this happens in this book, how does it affect all the other things that are going on? I, I love it. I mean, I, I'm being really pushed to my limits here, and I love it. Excellent. Well, and of course, you also have the added challenge of the fact that you're doing it all in a shared setting, and, and how is it all going to play out in this larger, uh, this larger world, right? Yeah, I don't think that's a challenge right now because I think we really did it right this time. And I mean that. When we had the summit meeting, they didn't give us a Bible and say, this is what's happening to the Forgotten Realms in the D&D game and you're going to love it and tell everyone you love it. They basically brought us in there and said, this is what we're trying to do with Dungeons & Dragons. What do you think? What effect do you think this kind of thing would have on the realms? And what should we do to the realms? And so, you know, I'm sitting there with Ed Greenwood and Troy Denning and Richard Lee Byers and Paul Kemp and Aaron Evans are on the phone. And James Wyatt and Mike Merles and Rich Baker are in the room. And the editors from the book department are in the room. The brand team's in the room. And we're all sitting around discussing it. And, you know, when I started talking about what I wanted to do, it wasn't like, well, you can't do that. It was more like, how does this fit the bigger picture? Mm-hmm. And then Richard would pull off of what I'm doing, and he would tell me a story he's going to tell. And then I'd realize that the story he's going to tell has some overlap uh, in geography and events with the story I'm going to tell because one of my characters might happen to be in that area. I'm just giving a you know an off-the-cuff example here. And so we're sitting there, and we're building off each other. And th- th- it worked beautifully. And I, I think that um, you know we've been given a lot – the author's – were, for the for the Sundering books, were given a lot of latitude because you had your area, and we knew what you were doing. Sure. But the authors were the ones who decided it. So it was it was a brilliant exercise of of creativity. So there needs to be a yearly summit of every Forgotten Realms author once a year. Two, right? two, one, Two. one <laughs> an actual summit, and we we're going to be meeting at Gen Con. Oh, this yeah? is the other thing. You know, one of the things Wizards asked me about was. You know, we're, we want to get back to that old Forgotten Realms feeling of kind of brotherhood. And, I, and they said, you know, what do you have for suggestions? And I said, well, I'll give you an idea. When I started back in 1987, 88, um, you had as many authors working in the realms as we do now. But we all knew each other. And we would all sit on panels at Gen Con together. And instead of, you know, being surprised when something came out, We'd sit there and talk about what we were doing next and 
So, you know, Troy Denning could look over at Doug Niles and say, hey, Doug, you know, you should talk to Bob because he's in that area with this book and he might have some Easter eggs for you. Mm -hmm. And then Doug and I would be talking on the panel. And I said, you guys should be doing these panels again. You should be you should be putting us all together. And lo and behold, at Gen Con, we're all going to be sitting on a panel together. Excellent. Make make sure you uh, you put a good word in for uh, Eric Scott to be and Jay Lee Johnson. I've really liked some of their stuff in the realms lately too. Oh, I don't have any say in any of that. I know. I'm sure that Eric has plenty <laughs> of supporters up at Wizards of the Coast. But you're Bob Salvatore. If you say something, they'll listen. No, it does not. <laughs> you don't think so? No, it, it usually works just the opposite. Oh, okay. They get mad at me and they get mad at the person I was pimping. I see. <laughs> All right. Now, you mentioned the, the big summit and, and that, you know, given that this, this book um, – ties up a lot of loose ends and lays a lot of groundwork for future story. How much of Last Threshold was um, was largely based on what the things that were decided at that meeting? Um, the meta story with the Netherese, I think, were much was much more a clar- more clarified, more clarified. Um, <laughs> the meta Drago Quick. And that whole thing at the beginning with Churligo's darkness and the sonnet and what they fear might be happening mm-hmm. all came out of the summit. In fact, I went home from the summit and I wrote the prologue for this book. And, and I spent about two weeks just writing that sonnet and making sure I got it just, just right. Hmm. And then I sent it off to everybody who had been at the summit and said, here's where I think I'm going to go with this particular slice that I'm working on. And, um, you know... There's been a lot of contact back and forth on stuff like that. Excellent. So that part of it certainly, um, yeah, that part of it certainly. That's and that's the part that that felt to me like was laying the groundwork for for where the sundering was going to be going. Yeah, nice catch because right. you're exactly right. Uh, now this book, more than I think any of the other books uh, of yours that I've read, are all about uh, emotional journeys uh, as much as anything. The Neverwinter Saga was exactly that, but this one I agree, absolutely. Well, this one and I think Spine of the World might be another example of it, and I think Homeland might be another example of it. Okay. If, but, I'm, yeah. I, I'd like to go through a list of some of the main characters and, and see if you could, uh, without being you know, overly spoily, spoilery, um, describe sort of the journey that these characters are going through. Yep. Dahlia. Trying to unbreak herself and every time she gets close something worse happens that knocks her right back down again uh Efren. trying to find mercy artemis trying to figure out that he really doesn't hate himself okay uh jarl axel <laughs> Just being Jal Axel. <laughs> There's no Jal Axel's journey is actually going to be important a year from now, a lot more than it is another hint for you. Um, Jarl Axel is. Um, I don't want to see if I tell you what what his personal growth is in this book. I'm giving away a big plot point that I don't want to give away, but he um, he had love for a couple of characters. Mm-hmm. True love for the, these characters uh, as friends, and he really wants to mend fences more than he even admits. Mm-hmm. I can see that. 
Uh, Ambergris. Amber is a blast. She's um. She wants to. She wants to find acceptance again, but on her terms. And her terms, you know, she's never going to kind of tame herself for anybody. So she she'll do her penance that she needs to do, but she's her own dwarf in the end again. Okay. Uh, now the next one I want to mention. Uh, when you first introduced them, it was it was a it was a duo of monks. Yep. Afrafran, Fear, and Parbid. Yes, and, and when you killed Parbid... I didn't kill him, Dritz did. Okay, when Parbid was killed, <laughs> my immediate thought was, why couldn't we have killed the other one? I can't say that name. But at least That's it was... That's the reason why I love doing that to people. <laughs> but at least he was a bit character. He was a sort of a B-list character at the time, and then you made him one of the companions, and I had to figure out how to say his name through this entire <laughs> book. Spell <laughs> math. I'm pretty sure you just did it to drive me crazy. I did it to drive lots of people yeah. crazy. I do things like that all the time. People have strange names. Indeed. So, Afford Frenfrere. Well, I, I don't know if a lot of people are going to pick up on this, but there's really something about this character that has never been shown in one of my books before. Have, did you pick up on that? Well, I'm, maybe. I'm curious what you're, what you're going to say. Oh, you say it first. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, I've, I found him to be um, a more interesting character than I expected because he came into the situation with, with no reason to do anything but hate and be angry and to fight Drist. Um, and almost out of, out of a sense of, of hopelessness ends up teaming up with him and, and growing to become a, a decent person. Why did he hate Drist? Because he killed his partner. Part but why did he hate him so viscerally? Your traveling companions get killed all the time. Oh, but but Parbid wasn't just a traveling companion. There you go. This monk, Ephaphrin Fear, is the first openly gay character in one of my books. Yeah, I, and and I and I, I didn't. I don't know that I picked up on it when I saw him and and Parbid together. Nope. I, I, but, I but, after but, the fact. But I did pick up on it in this in this book that they weren't just partners that were in sync. That there was a, a there was at least. Uh, a hint of a partnership there, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Did did Bob just tell us that this character is gay? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he's a really cool character, and if, if Wizards of the Coast ever lets me go off on a complete tangent, it would probably be him going home to the Monastery of the Yellow Rose in Damara. I, I've really... When... In in this book, there's one particular fight scene in, in the town of Port Last where where Afafrin Fear and Amber get off to the side battling some sea devils. Mm-hmm. And I really like this character. That's when I really started to like him. At first, it was almost a lark that I'd let him live that because I wanted the dwarf to save Dritz without having to kill him because, you know, basically Amber saves Dritz, who's kind of helpless on the side of a hill, by, by pulling Afafrin Fear away. Mm-hmm. And they team up, and it's a it's a great team up between the two. And those two, as a buddy fantasy, going forward, would be would be an awesome duo. You know, you've got the the female dwarf, tough as nails priest with the mace named Skullcrusher, who you know they go into bars and they get in bar fights, and she's winning money not only on the fact that. She's with a monk who, in an open hand bar fight, 
will <laughs> always wins. Beat the tire out of anybody <laughs> fairly easily, but she's making money healing the people he beats the tire out of. Mm-hmm. And I just love the dynamic between the two of them. So I think for I think for a Fafrin fear, what, what what we're seeing is that he got he got taken away to a place he didn't belong. And I'm not and I'm not speaking metaphorically with his orienta- sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about he got taken to the Shadowfell. Mm-hmm. And he never really belonged there. He went there for, for honest love, but it was making him someone he wasn't. He of the group, other than Dritz, of the of the six who get together, and he is of the highest moral character of the group other than Dritz. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, and he's a, he's a character that, at least at the beginning, the first, I don't know, quarter to to half of the book uh sort of sticks out as a, as a sore thumb of why is this guy even here you know what's his connection to all of this he's basically here because he's got nothing better going on right uh, and, but over the course of the book he does become an interesting character he's he doesn't become the sort of tag-along character that he sort of starts off as oh exactly and and he and the dwarf have huge roles to play as the story progresses now so that said if he ends up going off in, in his own series and spinning off into his own story. Well, I don't think it'll happen. Wizards probably won't let me. But but if he does, <laughs> he, he needs a nickname that's easier to say. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I still uh, – half of the emails I get is, is it Dritz or Drizzle? Yeah. <laughs> I'll never tell. It gets easy once you say it a few times. It's a Fafrin fear. Yeah. It's almost lyrical. It comes along, but it's still a much longer name than, than I like. But that's good. <laughs> All right, next character, Drago Quick. What's his journey? He's an old man who's more interested in knowledge than anything else, who's who's like the ultimate cynical he's the ultimate cynical um have it all. Okay? Um because, you know, I mean he's a lord of Netheril, he's fabulously rich, he's outrageously powerful, and he doesn't even care. But he cares about the philosophical thing and the prophecy. Mm-hmm. So he's finding a little excitement there. There's something that's come up that's got his attention that he wants to know more about. Finally. And so that makes it worth it to him. Okay. So he's someone who's looking at, you know, when everybody else is, who's associated with him may look at what's going to happen with the Sundering and go, holy crap, what are we going to do now? Drago and Paris, people like them, are going to say, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because to them, dramatic change and, and you know chaos is opportunity mm-hmm. to have some fun. Well, and, and he certainly seems a man uh, open to opportunity because he goes through a situation that would, it, for many people, create a lifelong vendetta. And he manages to resign himself to the opportunity that that presents. Vendettas have nothing to do with him. He is right. a- Absolutely pragmatic, cynical old geezer. Well, you say that, but there are moments where he's very emotional and very quick to anger. Um, yeah, but he wouldn't let it get in the way of his bigger plans when he has to. Sure. He, I he, mean, when, when he walks into his office and sees Camariel and Camariel's friends there, he's cool. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and he seems like even then he was angry. And there was a, a threat that he might do something rash, but there was a, a overriding intelligence to that of, of okay, I, I'm mad, 
but let me see if I can salvage this and let me be smart about this. Right. Exactly. Uh, and so finally, uh, Drist. I have to be very careful here. Um, Dritz has been trying to. Dritz has been trying to heed in Ovindil's, uh what it is to be an elf speech about living your life in shorter bursts, and the fact that he has been unable to do that to the extent that he thinks he should is yet another reason for him to think he's failing for a while and so he's he's in a dark place as any of us would be in his situation he's trying to find peace and you know hoping that he'll there'll be optimism again i mean he's he's trying to recreate what he had not just with his companions but in the world in the journey north to port last and and beyond He's trying to, you know, he's trying to be the, the big fish in the little pond and grow the little pond into the ocean. That's that's he's got this like grand plan that really hasn't got a prayer in heck of of of, of happening uh, on a big scale. So he's battling cynicism. He's trying to adhere to what an Ovendil said, and when he can't adhere to it, he's feeling that he's failing. So it's almost like he's trying to. He's trying to rationally overrule that which is in his heart. And that's an awful place to be in. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I would say that Dritt's journey on this in this book is his eulogy. Okay. And and it it feels to me that a lot of what Drist is struggling to do in this book is getting back to sort of where he used to be. You know, Absolutely, and not necessarily in in the sense of trying to recreate that life, but getting back to being that person, to being true to himself and who he was before all of this went down. Well, later in the book, I think that's what he's hoping he can accomplish, but it's not as easy as it sounds. Right. I think later in the book, when he when he finally comes to understand um, the way of the world now mm-hmm. and the darkness that is around him, he 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 makes you know he'll make that last desperate effort to try to get there in try, in terms of recreating kind of, in terms of recreating that life in tr- in terms of recreating who he was okay and i think i think it's almost pathetic in a lot of ways or pitiful i think would be a better word not pathetic because it's an honest try sure and i can and i can see a lot of that in terms of him trying to recreate his former life um, in the way he feels like he's trying to to bring his new companions along to be those new people yeah, look at look at his talk to within Trary after the fight mm-hmm. in Port Last, right? I mean, didn't that feel good? See, see, don't you want to be the new Bruner? Right. Huh? Uh huh. Don't you? Don't you? But at the he same, doesn't say that in the book. But you know. But at the he's same, lying it. Right. At, at the same time, though, um, I think by the end of the book, he's very much accomplishing the goal of being true to who he was, being that person inside, and 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 having that that personality. Um, I'll leave that to the readers. With, with within the new setting, within the new status quo, right? Figuring well, out. I'll leave that to the readers because okay. the new setting has a big part to play in that. I That's think. true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm curious though if I look at Drizzt as a person, going as far back as the the Icewind Dale trilogy, mm-hmm. 
How is Drist a different person in this book than Drist in the Icewind Dale trilogy? He's not being true to himself. In this book? In his feeling, in his relationship with Dahlia, in his, yeah, in this book. Um, and he he certainly, he has flashes of that old Drist, but when the going gets tough, we see maybe not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'll point to his time in the Shadowfell as an example of that. Sure. I'll, I'll, I mean, he's, he's, you won't, that's why I said it was pitiful mm-hmm. to watch because he's almost the shell of who he had been. And he has to be because think of the pain. Think of what this guy has gone through after particularly Gauntelgrim, which was kind of the last straw, and combine all of that personal anguish and, and problems that he's had with the fact that he's sur- suddenly, through circumstances, surrounded by people who will bring him down. Mm-hmm. And then combine that with the fact that he's in a world where he probably should be down because it's just a miserable place at this time in the Forgotten Realms history, in that region, is a miserable time. Although it- so everything is stacked against him. Sure. This book, in a way, is almost recreating the journey of Homeland, if mm-hmm. you think about it. Mm-hmm. I, I find that, I mean, you talk about him not being true to himself and, and his relationship with Dahlia. Um, I find that it, it, it doesn't take him very long to, to be very much aware of the truth of that relationship. He's not quite ready to just let it go, but he knows really early on where this is going and where it's not. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's not too uh, far along in the book where, um, where he, he has reason to be jealous and realizes he's not. And that starts to, to help him understand what he's Or is he are. just saying, it wasn't me, it was the sword from the previous book? I'm thinking of later instances to be jealous. On, yeah, I understand their, that. Their, I understand what you're saying. Sure. But, but let's take that back to what happened in... Um, in uh, Karen's Claw, when they're going down into the Underdark, I mean into the uh, into Gauntelgrim again, and and he's has these outrageous fits of jealousy, and he he just he explains the way as the sword, and I think um, you know I think Entreri agrees with him on that, but that's unreliable narrator, or is is that the truth, or mm-hmm. isn't it? And and the, or is maybe it a little bit of both. You know, maybe reality and the sword making reality, you know, turning reality, the volume of reality up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's complicated when you when you're when you're in a position like that and you find yourself with someone, even someone like Dahlia. It, it's complicated. It, it's it's not an easy, clean thing to say. Wait a minute, this is bad for me. I'm turning sure. away. That's just not the way it works mm-hmm. in the real world. So I didn't want it to work that way in the books either. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Even uh, with Chris. One of the things that was always, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if I want to say troubling to me, but always um, stood out to me in the books is you know, how in, you separate the books into books, so to speak. Yes. Uh, and, and Driz writes sort of a prologue in his journal or what have you at the beginning of each of those books. Right. And I've always found those to be very philosophical and very introspective, almost like they're being written by a Drist looking back on it from the far future with a, with a sense of maturity and, and, and awareness and sense of self. 
Yep. Um, and, and that's not necessarily the drift. I mean, we don't see him philosophizing and and talking to himself even internally in the same way. And I and always sort of thought, I always thought, you know, when when, is, when and where is he writing all these journals and, and what's going on here? And then there was one moment um, on their boat journey when Dahlia sort of stumbles upon him hanging out, I think it was maybe at the prow of the ship or whatever, and he's just sort of going through the soliloquy of himself and it sounded exactly like one of those uh, prologues. Absolutely was. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh. As a matter of fact, if you look at that and trace what the few words you hear, it goes mm-hmm. right back to one of those. Right. No. And, and I yeah, saw, see, I, the prologues are interesting to me because when I started to write the Dark Elf trilogy a million years ago, I was thinking since it's really going to focus on Drift, let's do first person. But then I realized, well, if he's being born at the beginning of it, that's kind of hard to do. And mm-hmm. um, also, the way I write battle scenes wouldn't translate the first person very well because I like to have a million different things going on in a mil- million different corners of the battle. And if I'm doing a first person, the guy who's fighting for his life doesn't really know what's going on across the room. Mm-hmm. So I decided I would put these in as kind of journal entries at the beginning of each section and write the book third person like I usually do. And I find that people read these in very different ways. And in a way that's, I mean, people read everything in different ways. People read books for different reasons, get different things out of them, see things, miss things, pick up on things that might not even be there. You know, the reader brings as much to the experience as the writer does, which is the the first thing you learn as a writer is that you can't control the way somebody's going to read your book. You can manipulate them a little bit. You can twist their heart. You can stab them in the back. You can kick them in the head, whatever. But the truth of it is that the reader's bringing a whole bunch of things to a book that you can't control. But a lot of people read the Dritz essays, and they almost take umbrage like he's preaching at them. Mm-hmm. And I always found that funny. When, when I would get letters from somebody, oh, who does he think he is? You know, blah, 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 blah. This righteous indignation or maybe unrighteous indignation – because maybe, maybe it revealed something about them that they didn't like the moral truth Dritz was stating rather bluntly. But whatever. Um, the truth of it is he's talking to himself. Right. He's not talking to anyone else. He would never talk to somebody else like that. Mm-hmm. This is Dritz trying to make sense out of the world around him. And that's why he's brutally honest when he talks in those. Or, but sometimes he's not. Sometimes he thinks he's being brutally honest. And he's kidding himself. Mm-hmm. Which leads to mistakes like going back to... Menzo Berenzan in Starless Night. How stupid do you have to be to do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. But he did because he convinced himself it was the right thing to do. So if you look at those essays and don't look at them as if he's talking to you and you realize that you're kind of eavesdropping on him, they make a lot more sense. In the way that Dahlia literally was. Exactly. No, and, and, and I've always sort of um, felt, you know, they do come off very preachy, but I've always sort of felt like or at least recently in, in my reading I've always I've felt like he's not preaching at us he's preaching at him which is why I, which is why I've always sort of taken this, this impression that it was coming from sometime decently in the future you know of him looking back at young uh, young him and, and preaching at you know all the mistakes you made and here's where things are going and, and what I think about all that if you play if you pay close attention to them sometimes I will I will use you know I will I will alter the tense Mm-hmm. Of the um, of the soliloquies a little bit, and sometimes they're in the present in the story, because I want to reveal how he's viewing the events going on around him that may or may not be correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, because you know if you're third, you're you're reading the narration that's not unreliable, but the actual reliable narration, you might know that he's wrong. 
so I'll, I'll reveal that in some places. In other places, it, it really is kind of looking back on a, on a situation. And in other places, I think it's, um, it's almost an anticipation. He's, he, he does all three. So, yeah, I mean, I've always had to wonder when in time and space he was doing this. And I answered it. In, I mean, because there's one where he's lamenting Guinevere. Uh-huh. Right. And if, if he did that, it, you know, or one when he's saluting Guinevere, when he thinks he's alone again, if he did that 50 years in the future, 100 years in the future, 200 years in the sure. future, he would have known the outcome. Right. Well, good. Yeah, so, so, yeah, I, I, I really don't worry too much about whether it's uh, past, present or future um, in terms of, oh, I can't do this because this is when he's doing it. Because to me, it's like his lifelong thing. It's what he does. So maybe he's doing it at the prow of the ship in real time. Maybe he's, maybe he's reflecting on something that happened before and maybe he's thinking of something that, that is implied mm-hmm. in the future. Well, for what for what it's worth, I enjoyed having that that little peek that uh, into into the drist that we see in the prologues showing up in in the the main body of the story as well. I think a lot of people did when I when I was talking to some of the other people, and I don't they didn't say it that clearly, but when you when they were talking about how this almost seems like the tie up of Drist's life, mm-hmm. um, you know, where he's kind of putting all his eggs in that one basket, I knew they were referring to that scene. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, uh, I found the book to be a very different sort of Driss book, uh, and at the same time, a, a very uh, fulfilling book to read. Um, I, f- I found, you know, I'm used to getting into a lot of action, and there was spots of it here and there in the first half, and then the, the second half, the action w- was all there. I mean, uh, it was every, bu- every bit as much a, a slam-bang adventure story um, as your previous books uh, with Drist. I might have a new favorite battle scene after this one. Is it the one in the Shadowfell? Absolutely. Well, the one in, in when Jarlaxle gets involved. Yes. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I rather enjoyed that myself um, for one particular strategy that he employs. Yeah, you can thank my brother for that. My brother used to do that in our old D&D groups uh, all the time. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but yeah, so it's a very different sort of Drist book, um, but I think a, a meaningful one for anybody who's been following the, the story and, and wants to see sort of how... Uh, how a lot of those loosens get tied up, and I'm intrigued to see where some of the the groundwork that you've laid goes into the future. Uh, is there anything else you want to share about the book for, for people before we let you go? Uh, no, I think I've shared too much. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I I think that you know when you're sometimes when you're writing, especially in a long series, um, I had no idea that this book was even going to be part of the Neverwinter Saga. And it was as I started outlining it and writing it that I realized um, this really is the the answer to the conflict of the Neverwinter Saga. And so we, we called it a Neverwinter book. And it, the timing was right with the Sundering coming anyway. Even though very little of it happened in Neverwinter. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> you know, the Icewind Dale trilogy takes place in Mithril Hall in Kalimport as much as Icewind Dale, right? Yeah. Um, but um, the conflict, you know... When I when I realized that this was that everything was kind of rolling in the same direction from different from different directions, but into the same place, you know, all roads lead to this. Mm-hmm. When I realized that, you know, sometimes you, you, the book takes control of itself, and and as a writer, you just you just have to close your eyes and, and go along. And those those are the ones that are scariest to write, and they're the most fulfilling to write, and ultimately they're the best ones. 
I mean, when I was writing my Demon Wars series, I had, um, you know, I planned six books. The first Demon Wars trilogy, the second Demon Wars trilogy. I finished the first trilogy. When I started writing the second trilogy, I realized I had a bridge book I had to write. I hadn't planned on it. It just happened. And when I wrote the book, all of a sudden this monk who I never even really thought of as anything more than a red shirt in a Star Trek episode had this complete story that I didn't know existed. And that book, Mortalis, is my favorite book that I've ever written or one of, one of the top three. I think along with Homeland and, and the book coming this summer. And Last Threshold is right there with it too. It's the same type of book. It's it's the type of book that that you have to face up as a writer to where the story has taken you mm-hmm. and see it through. And it can be painful. It can be brutal. Um, but at the same time, the, the fulfillment I get out of this book because I know the resolution – uh, in my heart was correct. Um, I, you know, it, it's hard to describe how how much at peace you get at when you when you find that place as a writer. Because this isn't about me writing books for you to read. This is about me writing books for me. And when you find that place as a writer, and you you come to that spot of it all worked out the way it, it had to work out. You know that you never knew was going to happen because you had you had nine hundred different things going on, and they all lead you to this point. You're shocked, and you're like, "Yeah, that makes sense." And so you almost think like, you know, I always say that I don't write the books; I just get on the phone and call my characters, and they tell me their stories. And uh, when this happens, it, it's like an affirmation of that. Mm-hmm. I guess the sculptor who says the statue was inside the rock, I just freed it, right? It's the same type of feeling. So I love when that happens. Excellent. And it, and it makes it a fun journey for you as, as well as the readers. Hopefully. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us again on our yearly chat. Uh, I, I'm guessing it, it may not be a, a year uh, before our next talk since you've got Oh, a, I don't think it will be because yeah. I'm doing two books a year for the next three years. So It'll keep you busy. Absolutely. All right. Well, hopefully I'll get a chance to see you at Gen Con this year. Yeah, I intend to be there. Uh, and where on the internet should people go to find out more about you and what, what you're doing and what's coming up? Well, I have my Facebook page. Uh, it's, it's capital R period, capital A period, space Salvatore on Facebook. And rasalvatore.com is the website. Um, you know, we run e-signings. We do things like that. And there are a couple other things that, I may, be, that may be coming up that I, I can't really talk about because they're not in stone yet but for me kind of new directions for some other things that I want to try and um, but those are the places you'll hear about it excellent Uh, and I also want to thank our listeners Uh, you can find show notes over at www.thetomeshow.com and thanks for joining us in this special episode of The Tome Show with R.A. Salvatore chatting about The Last Threshold coming out March 5th 2013